0: views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Sean Huang and Vincent Lam, co-founders of Matador.com. Matador.com is a team collaboration platform that combines project management with user-friendly mapping. I'm sure you're wondering, what does project management and mapping have to do with energy transition solutions? What we're going to talk about today is the efficiency gains from using a tool like Matador.com. And I'm going to try and make the case that this type of tool will be the future of on-site work for oil and gas, for wind farms, and really anywhere with physical equipment that will need maintenance. So Sean, Vincent, I'm very excited to have you on the show. Thank you for joining me today. If you would please share with me and the audience your your backgrounds and introduce us to Matador.com.
2: Thanks, Joe, for, uh, for inviting us. Uh, really excited to be here with, uh, with you and with the audience. Yeah, so my, um, my background, uh, I've always been uh, in the tech world uh, since I graduated about, I would say, 20-something years ago now. I um, have always been in passion with technology, development, software, writing code, and all these things. Um, in my university here, uh, years, I actually had a, a, a small consulting business, uh, back in the days when everyone is writing websites and, you know, uh, helping uh, businesses to get online. Um, I was, I also joined the forces and, and created us consulting company to help a company building websites. And that actually was my first, uh, experience in, writing cloud software Uh, and uh, back then I built a uh, accounting uh, point of system software for my cousin actually and Mm -hmm. uh, and it's uh, it's it's also my first paid uh, gig uh, software so that kind of got me into all these uh, you know uh, entrepreneurship learning about you know how hard it is to run a business and at the same time was studying and trying to get my first job going so uh, not until long like. I ended up uh, selling the, the product back to my cousin and so that I can focus on you know, um, uh, on my studying and, 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 uh, and the, on my full-time job. So um, uh, went back into you know uh, being in the software world, working for other companies um, over the last uh, 15, 20 years or so, um, have been you know helping companies like Google Earth, um the soul systems and uh, a number of uh, mid-size and smaller companies uh to realize their um their their products uh lead the team technical teams and so on um and until uh, one day i was uh, talking to um you know the people from the mining industry uh, when i was working as a product manager at the soul systems um, I talk to a lot of uh, mining uh, consultants and engineers, and keep hearing, you know, a lot about their pains, uh, which is around, you know, keeping track of all the uh, field data, geospatial data, and then sharing all these things with uh, their clients, their team members in the office, and remotely. Um, there isn't just a, you know, a quick and easy way for them to do that, and always like wasting a lot of time in. Uh, going around different systems and so on. So, um, without going too much into, uh, the, the ultimate problem that we're solving today, but just want to give you a sense that, you know, this idea and, and problem has kind of circling in my mind for the last, uh, many years. Um, and until recently, Sean and I started this company to, to, to try to solve this together. Um, but in any case, like my passion has always been in the product side. Um, I would say I'm more like a technical founder while while my partner, Sean, here, is a business founder. And, um, yeah, so I'm going to stop here and let him, let him introduce himself as well. Yeah,
3: yeah, no worries. So, hey, Joe, uh, good to be on the show. And thanks again, uh, you know, for giving us this opportunity. So I'm the other co-founder at Matador. So while Vincent does the product and technical development, um, I don't have that much experience like coding. Uh I'm not a coder. <laughs> so I think a lot of people always ask me, Hey, do you code? Um, you know, a lot of my friends, especially around my age, when they know I run a startup as well. Um, but my background has always been in sales. Um, even though I kind of graduated with a chemistry degree a long time ago. Um, you know, I took environmental science for a little bit, like one term. Uh that's my understanding of you know, all the chemistry back in the days, but um, you know, bit about myself is I left university, took a gig at a lab um, doing quantitative analysis. Long story short, I just got tired of, you know, doing pipetting and doing running lab sample like day in and day out, right? Like it was getting to a point where I had to draw like, uh, use Sharpie to draw on the beakers to, you know, start having friends, like quote unquote friends. Cause I don't see anybody like, it was just not my cup of tea um, because I like interacting with people. I'm usually very social. So I decided to, um, I guess, get out of my comfort zone, try a gig at sales, and I picked up my first uh, career in sales uh, working for a third-party marketing firm. So um, the marketing firm is usually contracted by large telecom companies across Western Canada. So um, I was mainly doing you know, door-to-door sales, so I wore a suit. I basically went to different small businesses trying to sign them up. That's where I kind of spent my years building up my sales acumen, um, you know, building sales team, learning how to manage um, and kind of see end to end sales cycle for smaller deals and then working my way up towards, you know, bigger accounts. Um, but then 2016, about like six years ago now, actually time flies, right? <laughs> um, I decided to kind of take the entrepreneurial leap um, because I wanted to really, um, you know, see you know, what I can really do um, with the sales skills that I just obtained. And I was putting a position where, you know, it was getting too bureaucratic uh, in a large corporate sales environment. Um, so my first entrepreneur experience was doing a startup within the VR, AR space. Um, so had a bit of run with that and went to Shanghai for about two years after getting accepted into a salary program there. Um, So I had a bit of experience, kind of cross-border, you know, in the China ecosystem. Uh, 2018, um, you know, the VR airspace kind of got a bit saturated in China. So we were struggling to raise funding. And at the time, my previous co-founder got a bit burnt out by doing VR. So I decided to kind of take a pause. He left to work at another company. I was put in a position where should I stay in China and, you know, get back into corporate sales? or should I you know go back to Vancouver and then you know see what other opportunity holds right and you know coincidentally Vincent actually reached out uh, the summer of 2018 and ever since then uh you know we just started uh decided to put our combined effort together join forces to work on the problem that you know Vincent mentioned earlier right from you know when he was working at the soul like experience with mining people people that are in the field and Funny thing enough is Vincent and I actually go way back. Um, so before me and Vincent reconnected uh, in 2016, uh, we actually know each other since you know my university days, right? Because we play the same sport of badminton together. So that's a bit about ourselves.
1: Wow. Thank you for that introduction. And I was I was about to ask, how did you two meet? Because it sounded like two very different paths that ultimately are now together with this with this new company matador and it it is it's always important i think when when we're talking about startups to have the technical lead and then somebody who is more of a sales lead or marketing lead who can see the value of the product and i think it through both of your introductions you have made that very clear that that Vincent You've been thinking about this this problem for for several years, and has kind of been brewing there for for a while now. And Sean, you can see the value of it, and you have the ability to go and talk and and share why this is important. So we've kind of been beating around the bush right now. We're talking about Matador and my sim simplified understanding of matador it is that that it is a map a mapped database of of projects can you give me a little bit more more than my understanding how would you explain matador to somebody that you that you just met um the
2: one line for matador uh if I if I may would be the uh, we always call it like the project management on a live map. Uh, in other words, uh, it's a project management platform for projects where you need to see what's happening live on a map. Um, we happen in a platform um, for location based projects. Uh, people who work in the field, uh, companies who have you know, tens, hundreds, or even thousands of uh, these type of location-based projects. They don't, uh, currently they don't um, have a centralized area where they can find the entire portfolio in one place. Um, And with Matador, we help company to put everything uh, in a visual way. They can see everything where they are at. And then within just a click, they can go in to see the details such as, um, you know, tasks, uh, financial information, files, and uh, all these site drawings and annotation on the map—it's all in one place. So um, it's a true one-stop shop solution for companies who need to manage location-based projects.
1: Okay, so you have you've combined everything into one map or one one single spot, so you can go and see the projects. I I understand the value of that as a geologist and as somebody who is using ArcGIS on a daily basis. I I very much value geospatial data and being able to look at a map and know know where everything is and what's going on. And I think I think everybody in the audience can appreciate that probably being a user of Google Maps or of Apple Maps either daily or or at least weekly. I'm curious, can you walk me through sounds like one of the the main focus right now for the for year tool is is remediation projects or cleanup projects. Can you walk me through what a what currently happens, what say the industry standard is for going through a remediation task. Let's say it's a small oil spill from the point the spill occurs, until it is cleaned up and and off the books, what does that process look like today for somebody not using Matador?
2: And normally, uh, when a site got re- uh, an incident like that got reported, uh, normally it will be coming from uh, one of the producers, you know, uh, assigning a, a consultant um, to get on you know, uh, to, to on-site and do some surveying around it, uh, initial spotting of the where the spill might be happening. Um, and then uh, the consultant, when they're on-site, they will be documenting uh, what they found, including, you know, taking site photos, uh, taking notes. And um, if they find anything suspicious that they might be hiring a, you know, contracting team, um, to dig up some boreholes, pick, them sa- pick some samples, and send it to the lab for, um, for, for testing. Now And then they will be coming back with some uh, initial testing results saying, hey, there are certain chemicals that are exceeding the regulatory standard, uh, and the spill is spreading. There might be some features around the, the area, like a residential area or a water body nearby that they need to act on it uh, immediately. So there is a certain type of uh, situation where it's urgent uh, that needs to be communicated back to um, their client or the main team in the office immediately. So, uh, so far they have been using, you know, uh, emails, um, uh, you know, calling up the client to report on where things are happening. And of course, like when you're talking on the phone, it's really hard to describe where the where aspect of things. Um, you might be able to send some pictures and, and uh, describe, okay, so this is like uh, near uh, 50 meters near the water body. Um, but to get an exact location and to be able to come up with the plan and discuss with the client, it's really hard uh, without a, uh, utilizing the map. And, of course, the other aspect of it is the all the costs and budgets and arrangement, like the scheduling uh, of team, and timeline and all these things needs to happen at the same time, right? Like when you discover certain incidents, um, uh, clients always ask, okay, so how much is it to clean it up? How quickly you can do it? You know, uh, what do you need from us? And things like that. So all those project management aspect needs to be planned out as well while um, the communication continues to happen. So right now they have been using, uh, people have been using spreadsheets to keep track of um, the, the data log. Um, using separate maps or ArcGIS systems. ArcGIS is a mapping tool uh, commonly used in the industry, or, you know, even as simple as Google Maps to to, to lay out, you know, to understand the, the outlay of the site and so on. And of course, like you might have uh, the inbox uh, sending emails, sending photos, and might have a network drive storing the different uh, historical reports. So, Uh, Just to give you a few examples of what the tools that people are using um, uh, to just describe one site, one incident, like a minor spell like that. And imagine, multiply that by 10, 15, or even hundreds of sites. It it very quickly becomes a very inefficient and almost impossible way of keeping track of all these things at the same time. So that's unfortunately what's uh, typically happen in the industry that we have seen uh, before uh, using Matador.
1: Yeah, so what I heard you say was emails and spreadsheets and pictures and verbal cues of X number of meters and combining all of that with the accounting department and contractors and, and the, the scientific remediation team, people in in the EHS department. So that's a lot of back and forth and a lot of different, really if if this was back in the 90s, if we still had paper, that would be a lot of files to keep track of. So I'm curious how now what what's the difference with Matador?
3: I think the difference with Matador is, you know, uh, going off what you just mentioned, Joe, and what Vincent said is that, you know, instead of, for example, people in the field using, you know, emails and looking at, you know, sometimes going through pen and paper or just, you know, having different windows open for people that are in the office, right? Maybe people in the office have like a spreadsheet tab open, like a separate mapping, like tool open, like, you know, Google Earth. And just instead of having, like, all these different tools that everyone is using um, on one project, for example, now everyone is looking at the same thing. Right. So the idea is to for that one stop shop experience to really consolidate and bring everything into one dashboard where everyone is looking at the same thing, whether you're in a field, you can pull up in the tablet, you can look at your phone. Um, and I think the challenge being in the industry is that um, a lot of software are really you know, good at doing one thing, but they're really bad at coexisting with another, right? They're more depth than breadth, if that makes sense. And I think, especially in oil and gas, or even, you know, in the energy space as a whole, um, a lot of these software, they're not very integrative and they're always geared towards technical users, right? If you, even if you look at um, software that are outside of oil and gas, like Tableau, for example, Microsoft projects, these are typically towards users that are not everyday user right like you need to actually you know at least go on youtube or like learn about microsoft projects to some extent before actually be able to become really proficient with it now with matador is simple as you know i'm not saying a five-year-old can understand and use it because they probably won't use something like matador but the idea is that matador is geared towards non-technical user so not just be able to consolidate everything, or be able to really have everything looking, everyone looking at a one-stop shop experience, and you know, all in one view. But at the same time, making it very easy enough so people in the field can actually start picking it up and start, you know, uploading photos, field photos, start tagging people, start working on projects right away without spending a lot of time just trying to get people onboarded and such. So. I think that's kind of what the differentiator is after organizations stop adopting and using Matador.
1: So with Matador, sounds like you're you're combining everything in one place. The right. goal is that that anybody can use it and really everybody can get what they want. And I could I could just see somebody like an accountant saying, I don't know how to use a map, but Realistically, as I said earlier, they probably use Google Maps to get to work or to get to something they did that weekend. So it's not like they wouldn't know how to use a map. It's just they don't know how to get to a map that also has all of their spreadsheets on costs, which I think is, it's very interesting to think about having all of that co-located and easy to use so everybody can be looking at the same image. It's almost like that that analogy that we always use, making sure we're all on the same page. Now there is only one page. So right. it's very easy to make sure you're there. I I am curious, what kind of what kind of savings metrics are used when you compare Matador to to I guess the existing process? So what's the value here?
2: Yeah, so uh, in terms of the, um, you know, intangibles, uh, I'll let Sean talk about the, the tangible values. In terms of the intangible values, there are lots. Um, f- you know, um, m- most of the time, you know, companies are just dealing on a project per pro- by project basis, especially consulting firms, um, you know, they are, they're, they're, their core business is to serve the customer and then maximizing, you know, their, their, their services and billable hours and all these good stuff, um, which is pretty common in, in, in the service world. Um, and many, unfortunately, many of these companies are not really uh, leveraging the value of keeping track of the historical data. For example, when the when the customer finished paying off, uh, you know, uh, a big project, then they move on to the next one, and and so on. There really isn't a database of historical work that they can pull up, and uh, for you know, uh, employee training purposes, or for uh, reusing some of the existing uh, uh, data that they can uh, that they can uh, uh, later on save cost. Uh, from having to buy it again, for example, um, so those are the value that we have seen companies really leaving on the table. Uh, by having a database um, such as Matador, they are able to keep track of every single thing from you know day one, right? Like they can uh, go back and see where things are at. Maybe they have worked on the same site you know two years ago. Uh, by another team, and then a lot of uh, the gold nuggets still there uh, from within from the historical record that they can reuse. Uh, these type of intelligence is is, uh, is going to be uh, quite handy when a company is in a growing phase or even you know trying to be more competitive against uh, the other uh, servicing companies. So that's uh, that's just one of the value. And of course, the other one is like the collaboration between um, uh, client is a lot like client. And and consultants a lot easier now. So rather than having to uh, generate reports and, and PDF files uh, over and over again every every week, which cost them a lot of uh, administrative time and money, um, they could easily invite the other party to come in to see things in a real time basis, uh, which is a lot easier for uh, uh, and a lot transparent, more transparent uh, to to work with uh, other other um, teams. And we have seen quite a bit of a saving in terms of uh, efficiency, like time saving in terms of efficiency there. Um, I, I'm sure that Sean can tell you a little bit more about the, the yep. actual numbers there. Um, but yeah, just uh, giving you some sense of what the intangibles uh, values and, and the, uh, the efficiency that we can bring.
3: Yeah, I can. Uh, I can build off of wins and So on a tangible side, so I'll just give like one of the case study that we've been working with with an uh, Alberta-based, uh, Calgary-based uh, mid-sized operator. Um, so uh, before using Matador, for example, um, you know they're typically you know doing a lot of project on site, um, and after using Matador, you know we've actually did an estimation. So in total, uh, we save them about you know, 270 to 300 hours of billable hours each month just on data retrieval, right? Um, So that's basically average of 45 minutes per person per day for a 12-person team. Um, And that's billable hours saved uh, for just one department alone, right, on the environmental cleanup side. And if we actually extrapolate that, that can equate to thousands of hours between, you know, multiple departments that are billable hours saved Uh, From just, you know, time wasted on, you know, trying to access information from data silos um, and, you know, unnecessary back and forth communication, right? That's an example.
1: Yeah, that is, that's significant. 200 to 300 billable hours. And that is, that is per project or was that for a period of time?
3: For each month, on average, each month. And that's for, uh, that's, that's for one department, right? Um, So for a 12 person team. So you're saving about 300 270 to 300 hours uh, for a 12 person team. So typically what we have seen is we usually target one department within an oil and gas company, for example, right? Or, you know, through consultants, we're able to actually get into more departments within an oil and gas, um, you know, operator. And what we have seen is, you know, typically for one department, we can save that much, you know, um, hours. Uh, between 12% to a 20% team. But typically there's multiple departments across, you know, different, different, uh, different verticals uh, inside, inside the same company. Right. So.
1: Yeah. Now with, with that 270 to 300 hours, what would, I guess, what were those people doing during that time? I'm, I'm trying to ultimately get to the idea of this time saved. What kind of CO2 reduction does that equate to? What kind of greenhouse gas emissions reduction does it relate to? And, and are there, there are other things that may be like, is there, is there less, less work hazard because of that reduction in, in man hours?
2: so in terms of the efficiency saving there instead of uh, people having to spend the 300 hours a month into looking for information which is already there they just spend the time in looking for it and and having to regenerate a uh, a bunch of redundant uh, information they could spend that 300 hours into the actual work like helping helping the environment cleaning up and, and completing projects in a much faster way so if we can if we can aggregate all these uh uh, uh hours that are saved into you know helping the helping the clean up uh, process remediation process then you know the world would be a, a much cleaner place to begin with so um that that's definitely one thing and the other one is uh, from a safety standpoint by knowing exactly where things are happening uh it it just um it actually uh, create a a safer environment for people to you know um uh to deploy their team um you know to spend their effort in in the right places and so on so there's a lot of uh uh, risk reduction by uh having additional intelligence uh, combined with the geospatial um uh, geospatial data and um so um, and and of course, like the having having um, the visual side of things uh, allows people to actually do a lot of work without having to go on site and study like and to do surveying uh, in person. Um, many of the data that we are uh, uh, data partners that we're integrating with, they provide uh, very insightful uh, layering, like the uh, you know the uh, gas emission, GHG gas emission, uh, the at the um, uh, where the infrastructure are um, and what's the latest uh, you know incidents uh, events and all these things that could be very helpful for uh, environmental consultants to get a basic understanding of the site before going there. When you think about it, like if they can save all these time and you know uh, being able to remotely study or survey the, the, the site without going there, we're saving a lot of uh, unnecessary travel. Cost and also the pollution as well from uh, the CO2 emission from the vehicle. So um, all these things are are um, are a result of having a visual uh, and efficient platform like Matador. Um, and um, yeah, so uh, Sean, do you have anything to add there?
3: No, um, I think yeah, I I believe before I spoke to Joe briefly about uh, you know indirect. Uh, for example, uh, reduction on emission just through better efficiency. I think our stance has always been on the environmental side uh, within the oil and gas space. But um, I think a lot of technology really focus on, you know, for example, uh, measuring or even reducing emissions. Right. But I think ultimately what people should actually be concerned about is, you know, especially during this energy transition is, how do we actually improve the way people are working and collaborating in the field? Because I think that's a more fundamental problem that people are often like, it's being overlooked a lot of times. Um, So just going back to what Vincent mentioned is, I think, be able to visualize your projects from afar rather than having to actually drive a truck or drive a vehicle or, you know, for example, actually travel to site, saves a lot of, you know, potential emissions, right? From just going out to the field and just be able to save a lot of time and unnecessary um, work that's, you know, at times might be detrimental to a company's, um, you know, financials, right? Uh, Depending on how much budget they have within a year. Um, And a lot of these stuff that people don't actually think about is if I actually implement new technologies in the field, it actually might be more costly for me as an organization, even though I want to care about emissions as as, as an issue. But I think in reality, People should tend to focus on how do I actually streamline or focus on uh, improving efficiency before even heading to the field. So that way, action I can actually um, stop the problem, so to say, right before I even step out of my office. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One thing that that Vincent you mentioned that I I want to circle back to is you made the the comparison or the idea of being able to accumulate all of those billable hours that you're saving and being able to apply those to cleanup projects. These now are cleanup projects that you weren't able to reach before because before you, you you're still using all those hours. Are there any examples from any of your clients of increase in number of projects that they're able to accomplish using using your software
2: yeah so uh one of our earlier clients uh rive resources which is uh, a uh, multidiscipline discipline oil and gas producer based in calgary um, they have interest in about i believe uh on uh oil and gas wells in north america um this year, like, I mean, the EHS department, the, the environmental department was being uh, budgeted and tasked to, you know, look at a portfolio of close to 800 projects, I believe. Um, we, we Remediation, like, of different stages, remediation, reclamation, or even, like, the phase ones. Uh, before Metadol, when we talked to them, they are, um, out of the 800, uh, they are managing about 100 to 151 uh, uh, active ones, so um, meaning that these active ones are actually um, they are dispatching their vendors and consultants to actually do the work, the cleanup work or the surveying work, whereas the the rest of it is kind of sitting idle in the background, uh, waiting for the right moment and the right ROI to come um, and the right budget to come to start uh, working on it. So that um, I'll. Again, out of the 800 uh, projects there, they have been working on about 100 to 150 a year. Now, after uh, using Meredith for a year and a half, uh, we started seeing them increasing the number gradually. Now they're at 500 uh, active, you know, uh, out of the 800 portfolio projects that they are uh, managing. So from there, we're seeing already like over three times as much as as uh, cleanup projects being um, activated over a year uh, after using Matador. And when we dig deeper, uh, most of the con- uh, attribution comes from the fact that they are collaborating a lot faster now and then more efficient with their vendors. And so they can actually dispatch more and more projects to their uh, consultants through Matador, uh, rather than using the old way of you know going through the files and reporting and all these things. Um, and and same same thing like their consultants can report uh, or update their information a lot quicker inside Matador without having to spend extra time in reporting for for Rife. Um So that's a, just one of the many examples that we have seen. You know that company are using technology to improve their efficiency and bring and increasing the number of cleanup projects um, as you have this uh, as we have discussed. That is that's
1: really exciting to hear that much of an improvement on the number of cleanup projects that that a company can can work on I think a 3x increase in anywhere in our lives would be impressive and I think it is it is that much more important when we're talking about cleaning up the environment so I've just out of curiosity so I think we we've seen how how this map-based project management improves and accelerates the ability for teams to work together. And most of this has been in remediation and oil and gas. How do you see this being applied within say a wind farm or something that is that is more renewable energy focused?
3: uh i can speak to that so um, last summer we were down for otc nape uh you know back to back and um you know to be honest renewables is a very uh, it's a newer field for us uh before we talked to some offshore wind uh companies uh and as well as looking at some solar grid applications but none of it really stuck uh, we were kind of just looking at renewables as an industry potentially that we can branch off into, and what was interesting through OTCNAPE was we were talking to a renewables company, um, and they have you know over ten thousand acres of different properties, right, from wind farms, solar farms, uh, to other renewables projects around the world, and. I think the difference between oil and gas and renewables is that oil and gas is very set in their ways um, in terms of if you look at the bigger companies like the Axons, the Suncores, the Chevrons, they have their way of doing things. Same with, um, you know, the software that they're implementing uh, on their projects, whereas for renewable companies, they're newer. So they really I wouldn't use the word disorganized. I know it's not a good word, but they're less set in their ways to have projects um, that are being managed by not just them internally, but as well as dealing with, you know, their vendors. Right. And we've seen incidents where like instances where I was talking to, I remember a fellow, um, you know, he's a land acquisition manager from one of a renewables company. And he's like, I'm having a hard time just communicating with, you know, some of our clients or, you know, some of our contractors, right. Like I'm still, sending over KMZs and screenshots through my phone. Uh, we're still using Google Earth. So it's actually more, I wouldn't say more just discombobulated in the sense that they're having a harder time managing project. I just feel like it's because it is a newer field and people are not setting their ways. So I think there's definitely an opportunity there because how Matador is built is not really just limited to oil and gas, even though that's kind of our bread and butter right now. Uh, where we started off, but the idea for Matador is that the platform itself is very flexible and can be tailored to suit different organizations' unique needs. So, whether it's you know civil planning, constructions, dealing with municipalities, um, any sort of civil works, as well as you know construction, right? So, the platform itself can be quite configurable, um, and I think for renewables, there's definitely uh, a potential market there. So. We've been kind of dabbling around, um, but we, to be honest, at this point, it's still very new for us, um, as I'm sure <laughs> renewables is a newer topic for a lot of folks out there. But yeah, I definitely see an opportunity down that road, uh, especially this year coming up.
1: Yeah, and I think the way that you explain it, being a map-based project management software, when we think about any real project, you go through the land acquisition phase mm-hmm. and then the planning and permitting phase and then ultimately some type of construction and I guess the you could call that the work phase where you're actually doing what the work is, whether it's cleaning up a spill or building a house, there's that work phase. And then there's kind of the final getting all the, the checks off from whoever's regulating that. Right. and then the final finish up phase so it's it is very very simple that if you if you go high level and think about it as the project not necessarily which not necessarily a cleanup or a house build or a well being drilled it it's just steps it, to go from idea to completion
3: yep exactly
1: so i've got a Another idea that as you were talking, I'd like to throw out there to you too. And, and before, when we talked on the phone, Sean, this, this thing just kept coming up in my mind. Mm-hmm. So you have this map and you have these work tasks on it. This is kind of what we've been talking about mm-hmm. and these tasks for what, what you have now you set a task and then. Somebody goes to the site, cleans it, and says it's complete. Right. As you were talking, I was thinking about something like, what if I wanted to order food tonight? Or what if I needed to get a ride to the airport? What is What is Uber? It's a map with work tasks on it, that task being picking something up and dropping it off. So I don't know if anybody has ever made this comparison, but I... To me, you have essentially built the Uber of remediation or project management work—a kind of gig economy-style application that companies are now using for that.
3: Yeah, I that's think. A, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Vince. Sorry.
2: Yeah. No, I, 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 um, I like that analogy. Yeah, I think I think that's a that's a pretty um, um, good comparison. Uh, whether where it's a gig, and uh, I, I think that where where it's similar, it's there are two parties involved. It's like uh, there's a supplier and there's a um, there's always you know the the uh, the, the, the client uh, who is uh, needing something done, and then you've got the vendor who's uh, fulfilling the the need. Um, the same thing happens in within the you know the Metador workflow or ecosystem is that uh, there is always two parties involved collaborating to complete certain things. And so uh, when you draw that analogy, I was like, uh, I was nodding my head because it's, I mean, in the conventional industry or oil and gas industry, of course, like the work itself, it's a lot longer, a lot more complicated and complex, and therefore needing to keep track of different kind of information. But when you drill down to uh, the bottom of it, it's yeah, it's just basically completing a task between two parties. So uh, for that reason, we're actually bringing more of um, uh, the social elements to it, um, which is uh, fairly new in the software industry. Um, a lot of these, a lot of these newer project management tools are starting to employ, um, you know, the tagging, for example, like the hashtag from Twitter or the ad mention that you're used to using in say Facebook or other things mentioning other people. So these type of social elements, we're starting to bring in more and more into our software because we believe that these are the uh, next generation of communication um, uh, they, uh, and and they can actually foster and have. we have seen how people are using those uh, simple techniques to foster their communication and encourage uh, more um you know, faster responses to, you know, uh, uh, to, to things. And so, um, with Matador, we're actually bringing, uh, even further, bringing it to even further, allowing people to actually tag locations along with other things. So for example, uh, if you wanted to place, you want to let the team know, Hey, uh, please, uh, survey this area. You can as simple as like draw on a certain area on using Mattermost on a map, and then tag the team and tag the area in the same comment, saying, "Hey, uh, team, can you please take a look at survey area one two three, which I which I just drew on the map with a tag on it, so that they can actually click on it and see exactly where the area one two three is that I mentioned, right? And then uh, I can even tag other things like, uh, please up uh, please update the budget." You know, after you have done the work, and then I can tag the budget on it. So um, that is actually a very popular feature that we uh, that we recently deployed, and and people have been using it um, a lot. And I think with the newer generation and the newer way of doing things, uh, and especially when uh, after COVID hit, people are more prone to using these type of social media techniques. I think that that's, that's a, the way to go for newer type of application coming especially the collaborative applications
1: Yeah that's that's really cool that you're bringing that in and you're seeing that that collaborative and the the social aspect ultimately making work maybe even more enjoyable and quicker response times and and becoming a a a quicker job to get done. So you mentioned that most of this, well, really all of this is between a company and a client at this time. So I see two, two big ideas as we talk about going towards decarbonization. One thing that you also mentioned earlier, the idea of traveling to a job site that is ultimately a CO2 footprint and that is a a carbon intensity that is being given to whatever that product is and i can see as we as we go down that net zero path companies will start to centralize their resources and their assets so that they could reduce their carbon intensity we already see that with some of the major oil and gas operators selling off certain, certain acreages because they are too carbon intense compared to other resources they have. So there's, there's that. And something like using an app or using Matador, you could essentially reduce the amount of carbon intensity. You could reduce the amount of travel you have to make and I think the the second aspect of that is, well, you still have somebody who has to go to the field, but what you've done is you've you've made it so people can communicate online through this app or through matador.com so that the field workers could be located in the field and and take care of the field and never. Necessarily have to go to a centralized office. So, so what I'm thinking is instead of a company having, say, a field office in the Bakken or the DJ Basin or the Midland Basin, instead, that localized community who already lives there could train workers to do whatever the field operations are, and and then those trained workers could service all of the wells or service all of the infrastructure needed. Now, I know this. there's a lot of legal jargon and MOUs and all of the, I guess, the legal aspects between a company and a client and vendors and being able to actually do work and liability. All of that is 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 beyond the scope of this podcast, but I could see how how something like Matador could start paving the way in a more gig-style economy to further decarbonize really all of industry by creating local hubs of workers and having jobs just kind of given to them through Matador was that
3: yeah i think yeah i think you definitely nailed that one um so i think with matador ultimately it becomes the fact that it's uh i'm it might be a bad analogy vince but you know instead of (laughs) before a lot of people would you know uh before online shopping people have to browse in stores for a long time right before like they decide okay whether or not i want to buy because like they have like that's what they're accustomed to and you know through online shopping people can now Like, you know, already browse beforehand what they wanted to buy. Like the only reason why they would go to a mall or store is because they still want to see it in person to make decision. Right. And so the analogy with Mandor comes in is that people going to the field is after they made a decision to do something, not going there to actually, you know, sit there and waste a lot of time, you know, like finding out, you know, where I should go next, where should I monitor, that everything is more precise right so when I'm actually going out to the field I have an intent to finish whatever I'm going out there to do rather than going out there and kind of just you know kind of like flying around in the dark right if that makes sense
1: yeah yeah that makes sense Vincent did you have something to say on that
2: no um uh, no I, I, I agree with Sean I think I think you know uh you nailed that one as well uh, we have uh recently seen, um, i haven't seen the actual app but uh, we have seen some bis- uh, use cases where you know taking photos of certain um, areas just to report the damages um, instead of dispatch instead of having to dispatch a team and travel you know for two hours to a certain location uh, they put out a bounty basically right the company put out a bounty saying hey uh, for anyone close by um, please take a s- snapshot of the of the air, this area, and then they give certain instruction and and get people to submit their photos. And for the accepted photos, they get paid. So that's kind of go <clears throat> go towards the, the the same idea, the gig economy idea. Is that there are certain uh, well, there are certainly um, uh, parts of the uh, activities that require professional training to do or to to judge and and, and uh, to certify. But there are also um, many of these. Activities that are that could be done by anyone, basically, right? With uh, with a camera or, or with a phone, uh, that can report on certain things while they are there. So, how can we leverage the efficiency and and the people there while creating um, opportunity for people to make some extra money there and and for pe- for companies to save costs? Mm-hmm. I think that's uh, certainly an area that we can continue exploring. Um, and by having a uh, you know. Um, a platform that facilitates the uh, the parties from both both sides of the world uh, is the first. It's definitely the first step.
1: Yep, yeah, I like that, and that sounds like a a really cool app. Whatever that is that has that bounty for taking pictures. With that, I want to transition into the final questions. So. I want both of you to answer these, and whoever wants to jump in first. The first question is: What's the most important book you've read?
3: I can I, I can go I can go first. Actually, um, I think one of the most important uh, one of the most important books I read. I wouldn't say a book. I would say just book in like book series in general is. Um, I think Jet Blunt, uh, is, you know, like Jet Blunt from sales gravy. Like he has been a sales leader for a large majority of his life. And I think it's a bit more biased because I'm coming from a more sales and business background. So for me, like his books have been great. Um, you know, since Vincent and I started working together, I was lacking a bit of like enterprise sales experience, even though like back in my days I had managed some of the bigger accounts, but, um, just some of his books, like Inked, is a good one. It teaches you how to essentially learn how to map out different stakeholders within larger organizations, uh, develop internal champions. I think these are really useful, and I think why these books are so useful in life is because uh, when because basically everything is sales related, right? Whether you're convincing a friend to you know go to this movie. Uh, whether you're, you know, convincing your spouse to, you know, go to Hawaii instead of going to Europe for vacation, right? You're always selling an idea. And I think Jeff Blunt's book is really, it really hits the spot because he talks about all these pathology, um, psychology related to sales, and how it's kind of imbued into everything that we do on a day-to-day basis. So I think uh, a lot of his books have really been great for me personally, as well as on the business side as well. So yeah, it's Jeff Blunt. And I think one of the best books he ever wrote was, um, I think Inked is a really good one, Fanatical Prospecting um, and also Virtual Selling is a good one as well. And Sales EQ, um, those books are just great. So I highly recommend anyone just, you know, if you have time, you know, crank up Audible or, you know, just get it online because those are really, really great. If you're ever learning to, you know, sell, build a relationship or even just start a
1: business, right? I like that recommendation and I completely agree that really everything is sales, whether we're trying to get a job, we're selling ourselves, or whether we're trying to, as I I like the analogy of trying to convince your spouse to go to Hawaii as opposed to Europe, that is everything is a matter of sales. Vincent, what about you? What's your book recommendation?
2: Yeah, I, and um, I'm kind of like the product geek here, so I would recommend a book called Hooked. It's a yellow book by um, Neil EO. Uh And basically, the Hooked is a um it describes how the modern uh, products are, should be built uh, in order to maximize the value for our users. Many software that we have seen, especially in the on yes industry, are built in a very old-fashioned way. You know, clunky u- uh, user experience, um, hard to understand what's going on, too many features, and take you know months to learn the entire thing. Ended up like you have a gigantic product where um, you know most people are just using ten percent of what they can do um so this book is actually talking about you know uh what triggers people to wanting to come back and enjoy using the product and it goes through the four steps from trigger to action to rewarding and then uh, finally further investment back into investment as in the time by the user going back to the product so highly recommend for people who are um like a technical geek like me wanting to build something uh, and uh, make a difference uh, to the world this is the book that i would recommend
1: that is a a interesting recommendation and and you have hooked me on wanting to read it so i am going to have to go find that and pick it up the next question when will we be net zero as a society sean go ahead
3: Yeah, I think uh, it's funny because, you know, I actually uh, did a research about this and actually uh, I wrote uh, an industry white paper for one of uh, one of one of the projects I was taking a look at just to understand the industry as a whole. And I think a lot of people are saying net zero by like 2050. Um, But in reality, I think it might take a lot more like not a lot more, but like maybe years after probably we're looking at, you know, 2060. I think when we're down in World Petroleum Congress, like, you know, everyone's talking about carbon neutrality, um, you know, all these sort of different um, opinions on it. And I think it just went from 2050 to 2060. Uh, But I think in reality uh, we might be able to get there potentially sooner. Um, It really depends on how we function and if we can actually identify the real problems in the industry Uh, to pave way for that carbon neutrality, right? By 2050, right? That's what everyone hopes for. Um, But personally, I think, you know, depending on how we look at the industry problem right now, you know, with the way field work is being done, emissions, um, just standard or practices, it might take probably a couple years more. Um, And that's just, I can't really give a precise answer on that at this point. But you know, I would say somewhere close, closer towards like 2060 would be a good answer on my, on my end.
2: And
1: Vincent, what do you think?
2: Like my, my, uh, ignorant opinion would be, uh, I would actually draw back to, um, say a recent injury I have on my ankle. I actually twist my ankle over the weekend and it's super painful. Um, and I can't even put any weight on my ankle. Um, so at that moment I was like, Hey, like, I don't want to be stuck home. I don't want to be not being able to go out and do any sport anymore for, you know, the next two, three weeks. And so at that moment, I'm super enthusiastic and, and super on top of, you know, uh, resting, you know, doing all these treatments, putting, you know, uh, the, the lotion on it, putting ice on it and making sure that it heals up as quickly as possible, uh, uh, as quickly as possible. So that actually um Works pretty well. I am able to walk a little more now, uh, when it, being able to start putting weight on it. And then the frequency of my actually, uh, 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 care to my ankle actually dropped because now I feel better and I can, at least I can walk. And I started to get lazier again in terms of like, uh, applying treatment to my, to my ankle. I think the same idea can be applied to any problem. Basically, when, it, when there's a fire burning, everyone's on top of it and, and doing everything that they can to, to try to control and, and set goals to extinguish the fire. But then when it becomes like a little tiny spark or the remaining of it, people start to walk away and tend to other priorities. So I would say it's more like a long tail curve that we're dealing. And my, my opinion is that there will never be like a true net zero happening. Uh, when we get to a point where, you know, environmental issue is not a priority anymore to the world, unfortunately, or the voice is starting to die down, then people are going to shift back to, you know, looking at other priorities. Uh, so I think it's really important for uh, leaders and, and um, parties to making sure the voice keep us, to make it as urgent as possible, regardless of, you know, uh, how much progress we're making. Like, we can't really take any credit look at even look at the, the current COVID situation here, it's exactly the same thing. So that's my opinion on what the the net zero timeline is gonna be looking like. It's gonna be a long time
1: that is an interesting take and a an example that I've never heard given. But I think as you as you so eloquently said it, it is a it's really if if the problem is at the top of your mind, that is when you're really thinking about it. And if it's not on the top of your mind, then then ultimately you forget about it. And and that is a a serious concern when we're talking about climate change and about about carbon emissions, that we may see a lot of, of really cool work, a lot of great innovation, but one thing that that i know coming from the geothermal world there's only so much innovation that can be done in in any one phase of work and if that innovation isn't enough to excite everybody to fund it more then ultimately it ends up dying and hopefully that is not what happens with the with the renewable energy boom that is that we're currently seeing and, and the energy transition. So the last the last of these questions is do you have any questions for me? And I guess since there's there's two of you, you can you can both ask me a question if you want.
3: Nope, not, not on my end.
2: What do you think about that um, net zero? Same questions, like interested to hear your opinion on the, on the uh, net zero, true net zero timeline there, Joe.
1: Yeah, yeah. So net zero, I think I've got a kind of combination of of what both of you are saying. And I think that that's kind of what, what I get a lot is that, there are, we, we need to be thinking about it and we need to be tackling it. And ultimately, and this is, this is, I'm, I'm taking this directly from one of my past guests, but ultimately it is going to be two generations of consistent, conscious effort towards net zero and successful net zero to actually achieve net zero and the way that you the way that he thought about this was that you've got your generation that is making that conscious effort that is making the transition occur and they need to teach it to their children and they need to instill those values in their children and if the younger generation doesn't care and doesn't doesn't accept those values then ultimately that work is lost and that work is, it It doesn't stick. So right now, if we're the generation who is making the change and our children are the generation who can sustain that change, then maybe 2050 is possible. But i I don't think that I don't think that there is a a strong consensus in our generation that that we need that change. I don't necessarily see it and and I don't know where where and how much we really where that falls. So I think it is a 2050 is a lofty goal. I would say it's probably going to be later. But I I am confident that it could happen before I'm done on this earth. And I'm going to, let's see, I'm 30-something. I'm going to shoot for 2100. I'm going to try and be alive to <laughs> see net zero by 2100.
3: That's the bucket. That
2: nice. The bucket, bucket yeah.
1: Yeah. There's going to be a lot of advances in, in the medical field as well because then I'm going to be what 110. Yeah. So the,
2: uh, the, the air is going to be cleaner. So I mean, exactly.
1: Uh, We're all going to live longer. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, Sean and Vincent, thank you for joining me on the show. Absolutely. Before, before we sign off, is there anything else that you wanted to share?
3: Yeah, um, we're actively looking for uh, a CMO executive uh, to help us out uh, expand the market uh, in Texas. So, if you know anyone or if you're interested to work with us, we're a fast-growing company. Um, we're making really an innovative uh, dent inside a very conventional industry with high growth potential. So. Um, Just wanted to kind of throw out there, um, you know, it's kind of what our roadmap is uh, moving down. So, you know, we wanted to have someone that can really share our vision uh, and passion uh, in terms of improving the way we collaborate and making uh, organizations more sustainable from both the cost and, um, you know, time-safe perspective. So yeah, that's just one uh, last note on my end.
2: Awesome. Yeah, I agree with Sean. So I think I think uh, yeah, welcoming anyone who shares our visions and uh, want to continue this journey down the um, a cleaner environment using technology.
1: All right, well, you heard it, folks. If if you like project management and maps and want to share that with with everybody in Texas, then reach out to Vincent and Sean. Well. Thank you again for joining me on this show and thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. Please do me a favor, give me a five-star rating and leave me a review. Doing those two simple actions will help these stories reach a wider audience. And if you want to hear more great stories and keep up to date with the energy industry, connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or visit OGGN.com. It's a new year and a new time for a new work location. If you're in the Houston area, go try out the Canon. Mention OGGN and they will give you a free day pass. It is also where we host our monthly OGGN industry mixers that you should check out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, corrections, or have a story that you want to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy.
0: Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.